Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss the latest from the UK after another turbulent week, and our views on China as the world's largest parliamentary gathering continues. With Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, Rob Mansell, Portfolio Manager, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. This time we are focusing on China, which is in the news for a number of different reasons. We are lucky to have Rob, who focuses on the area of our team of fund selection experts with us today. We also have Will joining us as usual to provide some context as well as the latest goings on in the wider world, including, of course, the UK. So let's start with you, Will. What has been going on this week outside of another incredible week in Westminster? Yes, Sarah, it has been incredible in the truest, most literal sense of the word, I think. But yeah, so I think the theme, uh, still doing the rounds a bit, um, is this, you know, and I'm talking globally now, is this idea of something's going to break. And this is really with reference to the potential for various kind of economic actors or, you know, cohorts of actors to be caught in the crossfire um as you know in this kind of central bank war on inflation which continues to kind of ratchet higher and higher now up to the beginning of 2020 if you think about it you know a consensus had been repeatedly reinforced uh, on the outlook for uh, inflation and interest rates basically disinflation well-behaved inflation at, at worst uh, ever lower real and nominal nominal interest rates they'd simply become baked in uh, assumed for the future now all sorts of contracts investment plans policy everything really uh, was struck with this implicit assumption in the background. Well, right now, as you know, um, that kind of world paradigm, whatever you want to call it, that feels pretty distant. Banks, um, you know, central banks have delivered a lot more in the way of interest rate rises than was expected uh, at the beginning of this year, as inflation has proved stickier than almost everyone expected. Uh, And so the global financial system is really being put under a lot, you know, is having a lot of stress put into the joints. um, And it's audibly, visibly creaking in parts. Now, the UK pension near blow up is a good example, but there will be, I mean, the feeling is that there will be other parts of kind of other bits of investor nudity uh, revealed. Um, And actually, you know, it's quite a timely publication. So the IMF um, has just released their global financial stability report. It's well worth a read in that context for those looking for more information and analysis on some of the potential areas where um, these stresses and strains are showing up. China's property bubble is actually one of those areas. Um, And again, this is, you know, Rob's going to talk more knowledgeably about this in a second. But again, this is about the danger of expectations that have become increasingly entrenched uh, and embedded on. You know, here it's not so much about inflation and interest rates, but really the incredible wealth generation that has been the Chinese property, you know, sectors story uh, for the last three or so, you know, decades. Uh, You know, China's property developers are among those who, you know, have been assuming, um, you know, have had their incentives, and this is, you know, private and public uh, uh, sort of actors, um, who have been become too used to rising house prices. And China's policymakers have deliberately um, tried to tried to tried to pop that. And that's, that's really kind of a big bit of where we're at at the moment, you know, and that is that's, you know, into that kind of incredible background of, you know, real financial strain, in comes China's, you know, mega parliamentary gathering, the 20th National uh, Congress. And it's historic, 
um, and I'm sure Rob can tell us more about this. It's historic because, you know, this is the one, and we've talked about this before, where President Xi is expected to break with decades of precedent uh, and stay in bit power beyond, you know, a couple of terms. It's uh, it's really cementing um, that break with Deng Xiaoping's idea that, you know, you, uh, you, know, you want to uh, resist too much centrally uh, sort of ordered power, centrally gathered power. Um, you want to spread power across the Politburo members who are, uh, you know, who have their own zones of bureaucratic control. Control. But yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting moment, to say the least. Yeah, there it is. And I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to Rob in a minute to talk more about China. But just before we get to that, it's been another nervy week in the markets. Any reflections from you on that? Yeah, I mean, actually, it's not it's not that much new. It's really that context that I've just talked about, about something, um, you know, something's going to break. UK politics really is centre stage at the moment. But the big story remains that kind of inflation story and the battle against it. And, and you know, there's still a bit of a hangover from last week's uh, US inflation data, which, you know, as we talked about um <sighs> You know, again, some surprised positively the consensus. You know, you'd imagine that after so many uh, positive surprises, surely the consensus forecaster would have caught up with this. But still, we're being positively surprised. And that has, again, got, um, you know, markets nervous that, you know, central bankers are going to go higher. And the sort of natural byproduct of that is that you have to worry more about those stresses and strains that are, you know, those creaks and cracks that are showing up in the global financial system. That idea of something's going to get Get, something's going to break, get stronger uh, as, you know, as, as central banks have to go higher and harder. Yeah, interesting, Will. So, Rob, moving to you, I guess in China's case, the problems of the wider world are adding to China's domestic challenges. It'd be great to hear your thoughts in this area. Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, as, as Will alluded to, property is, uh, is obviously a big industry in China. But, I mean, while they, they haven't, what they haven't really experienced is the wallet breaking inflation that we have here. So uh, that's certainly quite subdued in China. But as you mentioned, they've certainly had their own fair share of issues to deal with uh, domestically this year. I think the the property market where the government put the brakes on uh, has certainly uh, continued to be a source of volatility, as well as the source of a lot of the negative headlines that you might read about China. Uh, And while it matters a great deal for the Chinese economy, it's probably created more painful headaches for bond fund managers that we cover than than the equity managers that that I look at so far. The the reason for that, I mean, the vast majority of the China equity managers that that I talk to uh, have typically steered clear of the the privately owned developers who who have had their financing squeezed. And the reason for that is, is as Will kind of alluded to, the amount of debt on the balance sheet that some of these companies have uh, and has caused them the most trouble, really, um, is is typically something that our equity managers or the equity managers that we speak to certainly um, don't like. Uh, the focus for them has, has normally been on sectors like paint producers or water providers or tool makers, the, the kind of industries that supply the housing construction industry rather than you know these highly leveraged developers the the bigger state-owned developers in china who are huge companies in their own right uh, have been have been a bit more of a popular play for equity managers and and their position is is if anything strengthening at the moment you know we hear stories of them buying up land from the the most sort of troubled parts of the sector at, at what is Quite or what are quite significant discounts these days. The 
the outlook for the sort of private players is is far more uncertain. And uh, I was told by a, a China equity manager last week that that he expects essentially all of them to go bust, um, which is about 90% of the listed companies in uh, in the sector in China, which which essentially just leaves the state-owned developers to to hoover everything up and and manage everything uh, themselves. The I, w- I would say that's quite an outlier of a view, but certainly it raised a few eyebrows. Um, I think you know the other big issue and the real main issue for for uh, equity managers and probably the Chinese population at large is is COVID and the related lockdowns, which have arguably caused a bigger hit to the to the economy, along with investor sentiment. And I guess something that we have largely forgotten about or try to ignore in the UK. But as you can imagine, you know the, the word from the fund managers and analysts that we speak to is that there is a huge buildup of demand. You know, still with people locked down in cities, which you know we've all been through at some stage to some degree. When they aren't uh, locked down, they are jumping on on every opportunity to do all the things that we miss, like eating in a restaurant or taking a trip somewhere. And for equity managers, you know that means a lot of their focus at the moment has been on the industries that will benefit from any kind of reopening or any kind of relaxation of some of this zero COVID policy that's been uh, so strongly enforced in China, you know, that that's things like tourism. And it's not necessarily just things like airlines or airports. This is more niche aspects we've, we've heard of is things like toy suppliers to Shanghai Disney. So the people who make, you know, the souvenirs that uh, you can pick up uh, in Shanghai Disney, you know, the, the second and third derivatives of companies that benefit from any sort of uh, come back in the tourism sector, which you know is certainly an interesting aspect. I think the view from our managers is that is still that China remains, you know, both a source of risk but also a tremendous diversified opportunity set. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting reflections, isn't it, Rob, around the kind of the different states in different countries. Um, so thinking about what's our overall exposure to the area, maybe at the asset class level, thinking about emerging market equities and bonds, how much of that is exposure to China itself? Yeah, so just under a third of our emerging market equity exposure is in Chinese equities. So, so you know, that might uh, come out as about 3% of a typical uh, balance portfolio or medium risk portfolio. Our emerging market bonds exposure is is diversified across a much wider spectrum of countries, really. So it's overall, our China exposure will be something like uh, 50 bits or half a percent across uh, both US dollar and local currency debt. So the, the equity exposure is certainly larger. It It's fair to say that there's also a fair amount of indirect exposure to China. Uh, in things like our developed market equity exposure and commodities exposure, where Chinese demand or Chinese production can be a big driver uh, of, of asset prices and, and levels of demand. Um, yeah, an example of this, I mean, a manager presentation I went to this week, the, the portfolio manager told us that Starbucks and uh, LVMH, so that's uh, Louis Vuitton, Murray Hennessy, could could easily be classified as Chinese businesses now, given their reliance on China for revenues and revenue growth. So, you know, there there's lots of uh, ways to play China. I guess is probably the, the way to put it. The in emerging market equities, half of the top ten uh, companies in the, the sort of MSCI emerging market index that, that we look at are Chinese, and 
and 80% of those are consumer tech companies. Um, that has has been an incredibly successful trade for over the last few years um, for, for lots of fund managers. It's, you know, these businesses have been incredibly successful in their own right, been uh, growing in, in one of the sort of fastest growing markets. Uh, these are stocks like Alibaba, Meituan, JD, um, which may not be household names for everyone here, uh, like their equivalents of an Amazon or a Meta or something like that. But they are huge businesses with hundreds of millions, or, or in some cases, billions of active users and customers. So, you know, over the long term, those companies, the consumer sectors, the tech sectors, uh, have been a great source of, of alpha for our active managers um, and they're one of the few sectors that did incredibly well in 2020 but um, when everything else was selling off but they have you know certainly seen their fair share of volatility along with things like property uh, in the last sort of 12 to 18 months and and so uh, when to own these and how to trade these stocks based on valuations has provided a great opportunity again for managers uh, that we speak to um, I think you know these companies have also been a great example of the pros and cons that that regulation and government policy can pose to businesses, uh, at least in the, the short term, and and they're also great examples of just how difficult it is to stay ahead in a fiercely competitive and and really still sort of rapidly evolving domestic market like China. I mean, the thing also, Rob's so good at getting this across is just you know avoid kind of binary analysis of China you know as Rob conveys is this is there's so much nuance involved and this is why we have people like Rob to think about where to deploy you know which experts to get working for our clients on our behalf and where to get them you know but you want people on the ground working it out and knowing this stuff because you want to avoid these like I say these binary analysis where either China fails or it doesn't and China's stock market is or bond market is worth investing in or it's not you know, admittedly, you know, there are kind of, you know, there are always multiple paths ahead for the Chinese economy overall, you know, thinking about it from a macro perspective. Um, and, you know, many reformers, um, you know, both within and outside China have been disappointed uh, in many ways by um, the pace of reform um, on some areas with regards to corporate governance and some necessary rebalancing of the economy. And this is part of that property market story again. Uh, and they may continue to be disappointed in, in a sense, you know, that this is not the that's not the sort of music, mood music so far that we're hearing out of and again Rob will be able to speak more knowledgeably on this but that's not you know that we're not hearing about a massive change of direction in the offing um, you know coming from uh, this uh, policy maker gathering but you know it, it is I think that's one of the sort of things about China one of the many contradictions about China and one of the things that's quite difficult going forward is that there's simply, when we use the word unprecedented, there has never been an economy of this scale that sits uh, in this current position. Lots of people have talked about, you know, the middle income trap, uh, you know, this very famous kind of economic trap where um, economies are able to do the first bit of development, which is kind of move everyone out of the countryside, get them in uh, more productive jobs in the city and kind of, you know, industrialize your uh, your, your, your agricultural sector, so you have you know surging productivity and you get bigger cities as a result. But it's the next bit that's really uh, you know th that's really the difficult bit where you spur domestic innovation. And here, China's got a massive advantage 
of just sheer number of people. You know, the, 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 uni- the statistics on university graduates every year, I mean, they're mind-blowing uh, with regards to China. Now, you know, there are some criticisms about maybe some of the education and some of the sort of ways that, um, that China is producing graduates, but whatever, uh, in a way. Like, that's one of the reasons why you wouldn't want to underestimate China's, um, either the challenges that face it in the near term, because they are considerable. Um, you know, no one's tried to pop a property bubble, bubble this big ever. Um, and nobody has managed, no country has managed before this very distinct political system and, um, you know, the needs of not just having one surge in innovation, but multiple repeated, the chaos of repeated uh, innovation. And, and previously it was, you know, perceived to be kind of liberal democracy that was the answer to this, the way of making sure that entrenched interests didn't get, uh, you know, the Elon Musks of the past didn't get sufficient political clout to be able to block, and I'm not singling out Elon here for any particular reason, any entrepreneur in the past who managed to gain sufficient political influence once they gained the money and the, uh, you know, the success to be able to block the next generation of innovators. That's often why innovation and growth has not been sustained in many economies in the past. And, you know, supposedly this was the trick that Europe hit upon. An institutional context, part of it being democracy and the the ability to change leaders, um, that was sufficiently flexible for repeated innovation. And I personally think this is such an important moment to try and come up with this you know, that, that this right framework or uh, this, uh, you know, try and manage this because we are on the cusp of another, you know, industrial revolution in artificial intelligence. You're seeing that with regards to, um, you know, you're seeing that you, you see why that's the battleground at the moment because of what's going on between the US and China with regards to semiconductors, particularly high value, you know, high, um, yeah, high value semiconductors and so on. You know, that's all with regards to, uh, you know, ability, China's ability to, you know, dominate artificial intelligence uh, as it, currently does in terms of, um, you know, a lot of the green revolution ahead of us. Yeah, that's interesting, Will. Rob, I want to come back to you and maybe talk a little bit more about policy. Are you hearing anything from managers around where policy in China might be heading in the next five years or so? Is it more of the same or something different? Yeah, so I think uh, Will, you know, alluded to to a lot of this uh, just, just now, I think, you know, but I would say past experience with with policy in China, um, and certainly policies, specific policies that have hit sectors like uh, after-school education or uh, technology, would tell us that even if you spend all your time focused on China, as the as the managers that we speak to uh, do, uh, predicting the next policy shift is is probably impossible unless you are Xi Jinping. Um, and <laughs> and. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's becoming, uh, you know, increasingly an area of focus for, for everyone. So eh, all the managers are now laser focused on every word uttered by Xi Jinping or, or anyone else, really, in, in the Chinese Standing uh, Committee that, you know, now to try to gain that edge, uh, if there is one to be had from this. I think this time around, uh, the initial comments that, that I've heard uh, have been that while there wasn't or isn't almost uh, no discernible change in policy, uh, certainly announced by Xi Jinping in his address, that there is some degree of subtlety to this. So as as Will alluded to, I think the real emphasis of Xi's policy statement this time around, despite the posturing about security and Taiwan and and all the other horrible stuff, was was on the long-term development goals, you know, to have China be 
a medium level developed country by 2035 or, or achieve a Chinese style modern modernization by 2050, you know, extremely long term goals. But, but tying into that fact that, that Will mentioned that, you know, it's extremely difficult to make that kind of next step. And that that emphasis is still there uh, or certainly in the background, uh, quietly picking along. I think for our managers, that that means the, the focus remains on growth. Um, and what that probably means is that it, it remains supportive in the long term for, as Will mentioned, industries uh, tied to things like uh, high tech manufacturing and new energy technology. And and these policies will support clean energy, semiconductors, uh, biotech, probably in China. And while sort of keeping the brakes on property prices and things like carbon emissions, um, the I would say some managers that we've spoken to have said that the kind of lack of mention of COVID zero in Xi's policy statement compared to uh, the previous or five year statement or previous updates could could be read as a sign that that he's really looking to tone this down in the near future. But but we are really waiting until the the kind of national congress meetings next spring. Um, until they are concluded for any likely big shift in policy. That's certainly what the managers are telling us. Um, and there are still lots of things to be sorted out. As Will mentioned, you know, we're still also waiting to see who will be the other key members at the top of the party, which uh, which is due to sort of do its reshuffle around Xi Jinping this Sunday, I think, this weekend. Uh, and, if, and if we get the, I guess, the right balance of, loyalists and potential reformers in that kind of mix then then I think you know that could potentially mean we could see policy tilted more to the reform side over coming years which which would probably give the you know the markets a bit of a positive tailwind but you know there's there's clearly a lot of unknowns and ifs and buts around that and these are the kind of things that that managers are really looking at at the moment yeah, really interesting. Will, any final points from you? Maybe anything to look out for? Uh, well, <laughs> Rob's put it all, all the China stuff. Just listen to Rob uh, and, you know, trust Rob. I think that would be the way that I would put it. On the UK, the pol political situation uh, remains as I look at my screen, uh, what would be described as fluid. Um, and, and, but here I wouldn't sort of, you know, again, from an investment standpoint, remember a couple of things. One, the UK is just not that important to, you know, globally diversified investors. Um, you know, our multi-asset class funds and portfolios, they do have some sterling exposure, you know, actually, usually the, work, the, the other way to you think, you know, the, the uh, you know, we have unhedged overseas assets, which do well when sterling weakens. Um, but, you know, more generally, like many other sort of policy making groups, you know, whoever comes in for the UK, um, whatever the government looks like in six, 12 months, you know, they're going to be faced with a very similar sort of set of constraints in a way. Um, and that is very much, you know, the design of the moment, which is that, you know, the battle against inflation is still you know, right in its hottest part, central bankers are still having to, you know, raise interest rates in order to preserve medium term, 
you know, price stability. That's the important thing. There may be a recession in the near term. A lot of that is already, you know, priced and incorporated into asset prices. So don't get too sort of focused on that from an investment standpoint. And and a final point, as usual for investors, you know, the focus should be on the medium term prospects for productivity. China's a really interesting part of that productivity story. That's why it's part of our multi-asset class diversified funds and portfolios. Thank you, Will. And thank you, Rob, as well, for joining us this week. Um, Super interesting. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Look forward to joining you all again next week for another Word on the Street. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.